Hello, everyone, and welcome to Impact on the Crown with Tia. I'm the CEO of a tech for good company and passionate about making a difference. This podcast series will dig deeper into what it means to make an impactful change in society, whether you are an individual, represent a company, crown maker, government body, or social enterprise. It is all about collaboration for sure, and we are here talking about what that really means in practice. We focus on the dynamics between those who have something to give uh, and with those who actually do the beneficiary work on the ground. Today, we are talking about how the current COVID crisis has actually had positive impact on certain charities and how they've been able to grow and their demand uh, for their services has been increasing. I have two guests here to discuss this phenomenon and, and the guests are Helen O'Donnell. She's a Chief Executive and Director of Partnerships at Children's University. And the other guest is Peter Walls, Head of Fundraising at Hampshire Medical Fund. Welcome both. Hiya. Hi. So if we start from Helen, why don't you tell a little bit more about yourself, the charity you represented, uh, what you do and what are your impact goals? Sure. Um, so I'm Chief Executive and Director of Partnerships of Children's University Trust, which trades nationally as Children's University. Um, I've been with the charity five years now, um, and Children's University um, encourages, tracks and celebrates uh, the learning that young people do outside the classroom. Um, and we do that from uh, age five, and the reason we do that is that it's proven that that has enormous benefits uh, for children in terms of their academic attainment, but not only that, in terms of their non-cognitive development, so in terms of their development with things like confidence and self-belief and motivation. Um, and we focus on what we call the 91%, because um, Statistics show that children up until the age of 18 only spend about 9% of their waking life in a classroom. Uh, so there's 91% of their time um, in which they can be doing other stuff that encourages their, their learning um, beyond school. Um, we're actually a really small charity. So we're a small charity with a very, very big reach and big ambitions. Um, so our turnover is approximately between 250, 300k a year um, we've got five members of staff and at the moment five trustees um, but we actually reach about 112,000 children a year and we do that through a social licensing model so we license the children's university framework um, and the tools that we use to a mixture of different partner organizations so they might be universities they might be local authorities different clusters of schools multi-academy trusts different social enterprises and charities like ourselves. So we work with about 60 local partners in, I want to say close to around about 78 local authorities across England, um, with around about a thousand schools. And as I said, about 112,000 children per year benefit from um, children's university activities um, and, and are celebrated for what they're, for what they're doing. Um, and, and we're growing um, basically because of, of the impact that COVID has had um, mm. on school and learning in the classroom. And of course, what we all experienced in terms of the first lockdown and suddenly us all having to homeschool and children having to home learn and people, people looking for different ways of doing that and making sure that their children were 
uh, we're developing from that. In, in terms of our uh, kind of goals and, and outcomes, we very much focus on the outcomes that we want to see for children, as opposed to us for an organisation. Um, so we have six key outcomes for children, um, which of course I won't, I'm bound not to remember all six um, while I'm sitting here, but they focus on things like um, we want um, children to feel that they've grown in self-confidence and self-belief by participating in children's university. Uh, we want them to feel motivated to carry on learning throughout their life. We want them to see learning as being fun and aspirational. Um, and, uh, and we want them to feel celebrated by their families and their communities and their schools. So it very much is kind of joining the dots between home and school yeah. um, and, and community. Um, it, it's taking, I suppose, that old, that old proverb of it takes a village to raise a child yeah. and making sure that that happens um, in terms of all children's education um, across England, but with a particular focus on children who face barriers um, to accessing these sorts of opportunities and, and disadvantaged areas. Okay. Uh, yeah, thank you. Uh, sounds really interesting. So are you more of like a content creating uh, party or what are these activities? What um, is it online learning platform? It, it's, it's a mixture. It's a mixture. So we, it's a lot of it is signposting. Um, so for example, you know, we're, we're very conscious that um, there's lots of things out there. And I think that was one of the big issues for parents during the first lockdown was there was so much out there. People just didn't know which, which way to turn really. So we, we will signpost to um, very well-known activities like girl guiding and scouts and, and sports activities. But then we also provide online um, activities. We do some content creation. Our local partners will do um, content creation which is specific to their local context and the local needs and usually relates to the local labour market and involves local okay. employers yep. um, etc and um, we also have have turned our focus majorly during um, the covid crisis to at home learning yep. um, and young people being able to actually benefit from doing a lot of self-reflection you know yep. watch a film and reflect on how it makes you feel or, or what you're learning um, etc but we we work as a charity as well to um and that's where the direction of partnerships bit comes in really so we work to um have partnerships with uh national organizations so we have a range of partnerships for example with the likes of forestry england yeah. pets at home all sorts of different businesses and organizations um that are doing lots of activity anyway yeah. um, and then you will use the children's university um system that we have to actually incentivize and, mo and motivate children to actually go and do these do these activities okay cool great sounds very ni nice and interesting and very beneficial for sure so peter how about hampshire medical fund uh what do you do um hi thank you for having us on um my name is peter walsh i'm from the hampshire medical fund we are a charity which buys medical equipment for three hospitals, Basingstoke, Winchester, and Andover. And this is equipment that the, those three hospitals can't get through their NHS, bud, NHS budget. So it, typically NHS hospitals will get a sort of a, let's say a standard um, level of, of equipment. But if they want, in some cases, they want really premium stuff, they have to look to charitable funds to be able to acquire it and um and that's that's basically where we come in so 
um, you know, typically we would have raised half a million pounds a year in, in sort of 2019, 2018. But this year it's going to be, you know, way over a million quid, predominantly because um, when we when we sort of asked the chief medical officer of our three hospitals what was the priority of the equipment that we were targeting, she gave us a sort of a COVID list of, you know, all the stuff that they would use that they could use to fight the first wave, and as a result, when we put that out to our network. They just the, the 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 money that started flowing in was unbelievable, and because uh, obviously everybody knew that we were in trouble and we, we we were in danger of being overwhelmed, and I think that that really struck a chord with people that they knew that the money that they gave us would be de immediately deployed to the front line. So in terms of impact, what I tried to do is I tried to feed back to the donors is you know how much equipment have we delivered in a particular quarter so that they can see that it's actually not just stuff that's going to take 12 months or 18 months to yeah. arrive it's actually arriving not long after their money arrives yeah i think that, i think that's vital to be able to make that connection what type of uh, price range uh, these uh, equipment like fall into uh, per piece could be anything from a few thousand pounds up to several hundred thousand okay so, you know, like the most expensive piece of equipment we've put in this year is a, is a, a spec CT scanner, which we put into, into um, Basingstoke's nuclear medicine department. And that was, you know, I, can't, I don't remember the exact price, but it was hundreds of thousands of pounds. But we'll have small uh, devices for the ear, nose and throat department that just helps people with speech and what have you. So it's, it's a massive range. So you said uh, that uh, you uh, you sent the message to your uh, kind of funders and money started to pour in. Who are funding you? So we are typically being funded by um, by charitable trusts and uh, by foundations, which is one yeah. of the reasons I first came across. I was delighted to come across What Impact because I thought this is going to make my life hopefully much easier. Um, and um, but we we have clubs as well where we've got like members who contribute a certain amount a year um, as either as a private individual or as a, as a company. Yeah. And um, and so and then we have companies who will sponsor some of our events. So we have run a sort of well when we can we run an events program throughout the year, and and then we just get just donations, you know, random donations from people who have had a good experience at the hospital. Yeah. So it's yeah. kind of a wide range of different things. Okay. So, um, you know, we conducted a, a survey in what charity, what impact uh, amongst charities when the crisis started. It was quite soon after, a couple of weeks after it hit and asked charities that how is the, this crisis going to affect on their work. Obviously, it was early days and nobody really knew what was going on. But 30% of charities stated that they had to close the doors like immediately. They just couldn't do the service anymore. 60% uh, stated that, you know, they were in danger of at least reducing or closing down in the future. And I guess approximately then 10% said that, you know, uh, they are continuing as normal. Well, you guys obviously just, you know, started growing. So, uh, you know, that was, uh, of course, you know, great news for you. Of course, crisis is never good, but, uh, but um, kind of our philosophy is all, always that uh, also in this kind of crisis that an innovation will take place. 
And this is what you, Helen, said that um, have you been able to like even redevelop something you previously had or innovate something new because of the crisis that will be then la lasting for the future? Yeah, um, definitely. Um, it, it's interesting because um, we are just, just to explain about our income um, for a moment, we most of our income comes from trading. So because we license, license our model, um, around about 90% of our unrestricted income comes from, comes from trading, um, which, you know, when, when COVID hit, I was in two minds as to whether that was going to save us or that was actually going to break us. Mm. Um, because of course, most of that money ultimately comes from schools um, yeah. further, further down the, the, the chain in the children's university network. Um, and you know we weren't sure whether whether schools were going to continue with us we we knew well we envisaged schools closing and early on we we imagined they weren't going to open in september so you know it, it really could have broken us completely um we've been, just been very lucky that um most of those schools that we work with and most of the partners we work with i think recognized that covid was going to exacerbate problems that were already there um, and so decided to stick with it and then a couple of our um, significant funders um, actually contacted us and, and helped us out in that respect but i think that's that's helped us also be able to actually um continue what we've been trying to do in terms of innovate and and grow for the future so our our kind of longer long-term plan pre-covid i suppose our sort of let's let's see where we can get in the next 10 years ambition um, was that we would be able to open children's university up through a through a digital platform through an online platform to any any child anywhere um, from any background who wanted to take part in in children's university and that was always a long term plan so we started developing this digital platform I think it was 2016 when the, when our board of trustees said yes use some reserves um, go out and fundraise and, and crack on with it. Um, and so we launched that in May 2019, I think, um, and we started getting our schools um, to get their children onboarded in, in September. Um, then COVID hit. Yes. So we ended up in, in July 2020. Our goal had been to get 30, around about 30,000 of our 100,000 plus kids on there. Um, we're at 19,000 at the moment. Um, but it's growing all the time. But what was fascinating about that was we had 2,000 entirely new accounts set up during lockdown, um, which was great. Um, and so our plan has always been to develop that and progress that, um, but but do it on a much slower time scale um, until we eventually reach that point where we can just open it up to to anybody. Um, and, and what this crisis has done for us basically is has, it's pushed us into saying, okay, we, we want to do that by the 31st of March 2021. And we will do everything within our power to, to do that. So for, so for us, we, we've kind of been on that journey of doing something really positive and something quite innovative for us as an organisation and for us as a network, which was based very much around data and impact and evaluation and, and getting all those insights um, and COVID has presented us with that opportunity to, to bring that forward in terms of scaling that up and also to then actually be able to talk to the outside world about the information that that holds 
and what that can then do for the future in terms of provision and, and for kids and schools um, and stuff. So it's been positive in that in that respect for our, our kind of digital transformation. Uh, follow up question for this. Um, so you have now uh, big ambitions to really kind of uh, scale your, your you know, uh, the platform and your operations. What could now uh, company sector, uh, you know, bring in to this development uh, other than money? Do you, is there any services that you could be benefiting from skills-based volunteering? Or how do you operate? Because you said that you previously have been operating mainly by trading, but what is this kind of voluntary income uh, sector? What what could it bring in? Yeah, I mean, the, the ultimate the ultimate aim with it is to open up in, an individual membership subscription model, um, whereby you know those families that can afford it can can pay for it, and whereby we can we can potentially subsidise a, a lot of kids to have um, accounts on there that wouldn't ordinarily be able to afford it. Um, one of the key things for us is about building partnerships um, based around the belief we have that learning can happen anywhere at any time. Yeah. So for us, you know, a visit to your corner shop is a learning opportunity. Um, and I think um, we are very much also trying to bring um, different learning opportunities to young people. Um, and learning opportunities that relate to potential careers of the future and um, um, you know we work with children from the age of five and we see absolutely no reason why those sorts of conversations around jobs and careers and things can't happen from from that sort of age um, so in terms of support we are looking constantly to um, broaden our networks yeah. um, and to bring different learning activities um, to to young people so you know um, the more corporate partnerships we can create around learning activities um, you know we we have talked in the past and i'm sure we will look at again um you know in this new normal um is is something around whether we can actually um potentially work with different organizations or the corporate sector um to um, build learning activities with yeah. them um, that relates to um you know the jobs that, that um they have available um the sort of areas that they that they work in um that that's where we want to go really um yeah. we're, we're not in a position of kind of saying to people we want your help we want money etc we want to partner with organizations um that share our values yeah. that can bring fantastic learning opportunities to kids whatever they whatever yeah. they yeah. may they yeah. may be yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 for sure how about uh, peter what about in your case, uh, what kind of uh, partnerships could uh, corporate uh, bring in uh, at the moment? Um, well, there's kind of two, I, two ways I kind of look at this. One is that obviously money is, is just, you know, you, it, you're, you're always asking. You, you can't avoid it because um, the equipment that we're trying to buy won't buy itself. So one of the things that we're looking at is can we attract corporates to maybe sponsor a particular piece of equipment where not only does it bring us money to buy the equipment, but it gives them a vehicle to express their own corporate social responsibility goals. So, you know, so there's a kind of a quid pro quo where, um, you know, we get the equipment, they get some marketing opportunities, yeah. particularly if, particularly if the, if the NHS, uh, you know, supporting the NHS is is 
I, I guess, uh, resonates with their corporate activities. Yeah. Um, and the second thing is that um, because we're a tiny team, we're constantly short of just skills, you know, yeah. like digital marketing, uh, graphic design, you know, all of those kind of creative elements that, that we need to be able to put together a sponsorship proposal or, you know, or a corporate document, you know, having people that could say, you know, look, we'll do that for you and we'll, that will be our contribution would be immense. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I, I share your pain in that uh, because I'm running a startup and we have a lot of similarities with small charities <laughs> in terms of that, you know, we don't only need advice from people, we actually need hands, yeah, mm -hmm. you know, and, and skills, what you, you don't yourself possess. And yeah, for sure, uh, you know, there are a lot of uh, very valuable skills that, you know, can help uh, small organizations tremendously whether it's financial advice and, uh, you know, these kind of uh, services, uh, you know, legal, uh, like you said, graphic design, marketing, you have to pay for them otherwise. And mm. then it's away from the equipment you're providing or in Helen's case, what, uh, you know, uh, whatever content you're uh, creating and stuff. So there is a, a huge opportunity there, but I guess uh, the challenge is the matchmaking. Have, have you had experiences in finding organizations who have helped you with skills or how, how has it worked in the past? Predominantly, it's really just a, you know, sounding out our network and it will be, you know, a, a daughter of a friend or, a, you know, yeah. a trustee who happens to know how to do Instagram well, or, you know, that's the kind of thing that we, we typically, um, you know, leverage up. But I mean, I, I, I used to come from, Kind of venture capital background so I, I was very aware of marketplace type uh, technologies like you're trying to establish with Weinbeck and, and you know matchmaking um, uh, platforms and, and to me they're you know in this sector it would be absolute gold if you hit your objectives because you know certainly on the trying to find grants um, we all know that there's thousands upon thousands of grant makers out there but trying to get the right one is, 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 is a real struggle. And, you know, bigger charities than us will have a person dedicated just to that specific activity. Yeah. Um, whereas we have to try and cram it into being one of the things that we do. So I'm, I'm all for matchmaking platforms like yours. Um, yeah, and I'm not just from the cash point of view. Again, for, it could be from the skills point of view. Yeah. At the moment, we're just doing it analog and we need to think digitally. Yeah. So uh, have you, um, you know, ever thought of, uh, you know, more of these kind of shared value partnerships in that sense that I'm not talking about like sharing the same values, but shared value like Michael Porter's uh, philosophy on uh, that both parties, both the donor and then the beneficial worker could be benefiting commercially from the activity. So maybe my question relies on that, okay, you, Peter, you work with all kind of um, uh, uh, companies who provide equipment, could you get them to somehow sponsor you more or reducing the prices if you you could be obtaining more like research information from the beneficiary, from the care, you know, from the NHS as a kind of, you know, kind of giving back to them something that they could work on and develop new equipment. And also this question is for Helen as well, that since you are reaching 
uh, over 100,000 kids and in the future several hundred thousands of kids in the UK, is there some kind of like a data which doesn't obviously then, uh, you know, neglect the uh, privacy things, but as a general data that you could be sharing with maybe some companies who are developing products for kids, maybe very commercial companies maybe, that you could give some insight which would help them to develop services and products. So both parties would benefit, yet you would get, uh, you know, cash or at least cash worth of contributions. How do you feel about this theory in general? Is there any ethical issues with this there's a small one maybe on our side which is that and i haven't quite figured out what the answer is but um you know we we've now very much taken ownership of buying the equipment yep. from from the medic you know from the from the medical equipment companies yeah and um and 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 typically the piece of equipment we'll, we'll buy will have been identified by a consultant as the key piece of equipment that they want so there's not a huge amount in terms of we can do in terms of haggling because that's the thing they want so that's the thing we want to get but by but, but i'm but i'm sort of reaching out to them and say you know listen you know we're going to buy your equipment you know what can you what can you do to help us you know to buy your equipment because until we hit our numbers we can't get there so what I'm trying to see is whether they can turn around and say and become like an army of fundraisers for us, mm. uh, where maybe their staff could could you know abseil a building or do a marathon, you know, where they would be doing it for us so that we could then buy equipment from their company. I I, I don't think I think it's ethical, but <laughs> I don't know whether the, you know we'd be breaching anti-bribery laws or whatever. But, you know, <laughs> but yeah. Um, but I guess you are uh, looking for any way that there would be com uh, commitment from uh, both parties. And I guess especially when it comes to medicine or medical equipment, obviously that's their business. So why would they kind of give a lot of, uh, you know, lower prices or, you know, kind of uh, reductions or something because that's their business. Yeah. Then again, you know, there are these aspects that, you know, it's a crisis and people are dying and the equipment are needed. So uh, also then kind of thinking that you are raising money from individuals and companies and they are paying the full profit price for the equipment that happened to be very much necessary at the moment. Mm -hmm. So I guess... I guess it's, it's kind of circuitous in the yes. sense that, um, you know, if, if, you know, obviously medical companies have done incredibly well out of the crisis, yeah. but again, I think within their, uh, within their stakeholders, they can be um, advertising the fact that there's guys like us out there trying to buy their stuff, you know, mm -hmm. where they can say, listen, you know, this sounds like a great charity. They've been buying equipment from us, you know, at least if they advocate us to their own stakeholders, then it's that's good awareness building for us. So that would be have have you been experiencing this guy? Because I think that's that would be the way way forward. But have you been experiencing this that uh, you've been kind of advocated by your uh, you know so, you know these equipment pro providers? Not so far, only because I it's I've only kind of hit on it. I mean, it should have been maybe obvious, but. Um, it's only kind of in recent months because we've had so much interaction to them that I'm thinking, well, hang on a second. These guys should actually be championing yeah. us because we're going to help their business. So, um, but I think it's all to everybody's kind of a, a little bit sheepish about well, could this be seen to be uh, slightly 
disingenuous that you know we're advocating this medical charity because it's going to buy our equipment so yep. we have to tread a kind of a fine line so that it's not it doesn't look like it's a cynical ploy yeah but then again you know um i'm sometimes uh, you know thinking myself because there are a lot of motivations why people even give whether it's individual corporate grant maker so motivations can be very hidden of course everybody wants to do good in an individual level but with the organizational motives what might be something but in the end sometimes it just doesn't matter if you get the resource or you get the support. So yeah. we probably shouldn't be too precious about these things and just understand that everybody has these inherent motivations and businesses are there to make money, but if they want to at the same time contribute social value, why couldn't you know they just do both? And yeah, um, yeah so you know, I think that's a good idea maybe to attach some kind of a little demand there that when we are buying we are expecting you to advocate how about helen you yeah i mean we we've thought about this a lot from the from the perspective of data um and in terms of you know what what that can mean for those kind of win-win um relationships um because we've i think we're very aware of the data that we hold and yeah. how useful that data in its you know anonymized purely quantitative state can be for yeah. for some of our our partners so the so the way our digital system is is built because um it's it's um you know children who put their information about the the learning hours that they're collecting on there um, and that information is accessible to school the data the data that we hold basically ranges from what we what we term actionable data so a school being able to actually look at their data and saying oh well, we know these five children don't do any form of extracurricular learning beyond school what can we do to encourage them to do it right up to kind of local regional data so that means our local authorities our um, local partners could be seeing that um, data in terms of you know where there is provision where there isn't what are the cold spots etc and that then obviously is aggregated up to a national level, um, you know, which which is the point at which we want to be knocking on, you know, yeah. policymakers' doors and saying, look, there are real issues here. But what it also means for our learning partners and for some of those corporate partners that we work with is we can actually be one one we can be putting them in front of uh, more than one hundred and ten thousand families a year. Yeah. Um, but also, you know any anybody can access this stuff so whereas a lot of our um learning and partnerships have been at a local level previously what we've got now means that you know i, I don't know a really really small business in blackpool can actually be putting something in front of these kids anywhere across the country yeah um and and so we are thinking about about that a lot um, and and also, you know, we've we've started conversations, cross-party conversations with with MPs and peers, just about, you know, how that data can can help. So so we are thinking about it a lot. I don't think we've really nailed as yet, and I'm sure it'll take yeah. us a long time to work out how ethically we should do that, and how how we want to do it, and how we want to shape those relationships. Um, but yeah, it's at the forefront of our mind. Just just how much data we can give um, around, you know, how many kids are, are accessing opportunities and, and stuff. I'm thinking we have we have one very kind of um, practical pre-COVID um, relationship with which is superb. So we work with Cognizant, 
we're a global global tech company um, who first reached out to us um, because um, they've got London offices based around Paddington Central and we have some local children's universities uh, that work with schools around there. Um, so we started a relationship which was about um, um, offering those kids in those schools the opportunity to visit cognizance offices to see to, to understand about the, the jobs that um, happened there. Um, they started running um, various um, code clubs and different things, got the kids in through various AI activities. Um, that relationship then grew and spread to some of our other local children's universities. Um, we ended up with some of Cognizant staff volunteering and going into those schools and actually running um, after-school coding clubs in those schools but where we're at now in terms of the digital is of course we can put cognizant in front of yeah. any child anywhere yeah. um across the country um and any child globally can tap into you know the, what cognizant have got to got to offer and we can provide cognizant with the data around um you know how many kids are doing their activities that they're providing where they are and, and what skills they're developing and stuff so yeah it's um it's something we're thinking about a lot um where we go with it i don't quite know yet yeah well i guess you need uh, uh, somebody on the other side of the table to start innovating with <laughs> yeah but this sounds really good i mean it's amazing and i'm sure that uh, also these volunteers are very motivated uh, you know, uh, because this need for learning to code and, you know, using digital devices, it's just, you know, we know it's so important and uh, a lot of families cannot provide that for their children, neither. Absolutely. So, yeah. Okay. Uh, would you like to uh, make a wish for the new year? Uh, <laughs> so, Peter, why don't you start? What is your wish for uh, 2021 as is a charity? As a charity, um, gosh, I'd love to be able to maintain our level of income um, because I think our wish list for 2021 is going to be even longer than the wish list yeah. for 2020. So, um, but we need to, I, I guess we just need to, we need to crack how to be di more digital than analog. I think that that's where we've struggled. So my wish is for, for, to find a digital guru for free. Yeah. So a company with a lot of digital gurus to help you out. Helen. I just wanted to respond to Peter and say perhaps we should have a chat <laughs> <laughs> outside, outside of this, um, this podcast because obviously we've, we've experienced of being a really small charity and, and just biting the digital bullet and, and going for it and, and getting through that. Um, I think, oh gosh, my wish for 2021, like Peter says, I think we'll, I think we'll survive 2020. And into the beginning of 2021, probably not impacted too much from an income point of view. But what comes the year after, I think, frightens me more than what's happened um, this year. Um, oh gosh, a wish. Um, I'd I'd like to see. I think I think what COVID's done for an organisation like ours that works in education is it's it's really um, hammered home to people on all levels. So you know, parents, everybody. The potential there is now to open up conversations about what the future of our education system and schooling should look like um, in this country um, and I think there's some really exciting conversations happening um, you know at a national level among 
teachers and schools and parents about how our education system is too focused on exams um, yeah. and not focused on preparing kids for for life and yeah. i think we you know i think there's a realization generally now that we've got a very strange view of what success looks like from an education point of view and i think there are some really exciting conversations taking place around where learning has to happen mm. um you know and the fact that we've all been in a lockdown and we've all ended up homeschooling our kids and and well trying to homeschool our kids um, and doing that i think has made people realize that it doesn't have to happen between nine and three in a formal classroom um, and also it's opened up some really interesting conversations about who needs to be involved yeah um in that learning and educating our kids and i think the really exciting one for me and you know we've seen so much with the the high um profile marcus rashford campaign around um food poverty etc i think i think it's opened up real conversations um, about the need to tackle inequalities outside the classroom as well as inside the classroom so i see this kind of a very exciting window of opportunity ahead and I suppose my wish therefore would be that we can continue down that route and that that actually takes hold in terms of where our education policy starts to go um, and that we see some real real change and that of course ultimately that then benefits children's university because <laughs> it means everybody wants to do it and everybody gets it but I, I'd like to see I'd like to see that big change happen in education Okay, well, that is a big wish, but like you said, there's a window of opportunity and, and sounds great. I mean, that this conversation has already started and uh, I'm sure something could come out of it for sure. There, there Likewise, is from Peter's perspective, I think there's the same conversations yeah. hopefully going on around about the NHS and, yeah. and healthcare and, and care in general, yeah. care workers, etc. I'd like to see big changes there as well. <laughs> yeah, so maybe it's about, you know, like it was stated, in the beginning of COVID that, you know, who are the ones that we need now, you know, and, and what kind of role uh, NHS and, uh, you know, teachers actually play, uh, in what kind of role they play. And sometimes there might be even too high of expectations. What can, you know, these institutions and organizations do? Uh, so there should be some shared responsibility more and, and, and so on. But I thank you now for this uh, conversation. Thank you so much. And thank you for everybody listening to uh, Impact on the Crown with Tia. Uh, uh, I truly hope that you got some ideas, whether an individual donor or company representative or grant maker, how you can um, you know, approach uh, smaller charities and help them grow and scale their uh, fantastic work. And if you wish to learn anything new from the uh, charity, sector industry just visit whatimpact.com and you can send us uh, questions in our chatbot and we will respond thank you helen thank you peter thank, thank you, you.